As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I was going to be joined by Paul Ariola today, but he got injured warming up his vocal cords. <laughs> so instead, with me to discuss the USA's come-from-behind victory over Costa Rica in World Cup qualifying is Joe Lowry. Joe, thank you for being here. I'm assuming you are all limbered up now, ready to go. No injury concerns heading into this one. I'm limbered up, baby, and I'm Tim Weah in this analogy, and you know what? I am totally cool with that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess that's a good person to be. Uh, so as Joe is Tim Weah, uh, we are going to be discussing the USA's win over Costa Rica, as I said. But I want to start off going back to the Jamaica game, not the Panama game, but the Jamaica game. Because when we recorded that one, Joe, I think you more so than I was a little bit nervous about, or not nervous, but cautiously optimistic, I guess would be a better way to put it. Concerned we hadn't played a compact defense yet or learned all that much from that game because Jamaica sort of played into the USA's hands. Then there's the Panama game, but then we have last night's win. And I'm wondering if you are feeling better overall about things or if you're feeling similar to how you were after the Jamaica game in that Costa Rica did some things that probably helped the U.S. get back into this game. Yes, I'm feeling better about things, but also, yes, Costa Rica did some of the things that you're describing, Taylor. This was a huge result for the U.S. men's national team. The win here was extremely important. Now the U.S. is sitting second in the Ocho. They have a chance, even if they lose, or or, I mean, it's likely that they lose to Mexico in the next window. They have a chance to still be second in the table or third and likely not dropping below that. They could end up in fourth, but they've sort of allowed themselves to have a little bit of wiggle room here, and that doesn't happen without this win. So that's massive, Taylor. There were a lot of really positive aspects of this performance. Overall, I think it was the best performance of World Cup qualifying so far, even though there were a lot of things that that helped the U.S. get to this point Mm -hmm. that maybe were outside of their control. It does need to be said, though, Taylor, and I think this gets to your question a bit, that Costa Rica are probably one of the worst teams in this eight-team group, right? They looked old. Brian Lee's looked old, and he's quality on the ball still. And Greg Berhalter kind of talked about how he can't say anything bad about Brian Ruiz in the post-match press conference when he was asked about that. But, I mean, they looked old. They looked slow. You can only beat the teams in front of you. 
Um, and so the U.S. did that. But I do think it's important to still be measured even after a really great result and, and a lot of really good bits of a performance in this game. No, I totally agree with you, because if we're not going to say Burhalter out, this team is garbage, set it all on fire after that Panama game, I think it would then be slightly unfair to come back and say like, yep, everything's right with the world. We figured it out. We're going to win the World Cup. And I definitely don't want to go that route either. Instead, I want to look at this this game as a whole and see what we liked, what we didn't like, what we learned, because I do think that there are some some big things I learned. I feel com- more confident about certain players and certain combinations of players. Uh, but I still have that lingering fear of like what happens when we do play a team that is much more compact, that does yeah. have some speed, that can make us pay if we keep turning the ball over. So we're going to talk all those things. We're going to talk goals. We're going to talk where we go from here. But first, let's start with the starting lineups. Uh, I was confused when I saw it because there were things, <laughs> as I tweeted, things I liked. It was nice to see Chris Richards in there. I was happy to see Eunice Musa start. The MMA or MAM midfield, whichever one you prefer, of uh, Musa, Adams, and McKinney was back and looked about as strong as it's looked, in my opinion. I think uh, we I think we both wanted to see Brendan Aronson in there. We were both ready to see Ricardo Pepe. I don't think either one of us saw Paul Ariola starting, which obviously he didn't do to injury, but he was the player that Burhalter was going to go with. And I literally scratched my head on that one, Joe. Where were you when you saw Ariola in the lineup? I think we might have been scratching our heads simultaneously. There uh, there's a lot of value that Paul Ariola provides, and we've talked about this over and over again. We talk about all these guys. So we have to, right, over and over again, and, and we learn things along the way. Paul Ariola really hasn't changed his game. He had a great performance against Jamaica. He was running everywhere, and we talked about that. A lot of folks talked about how underrated he is as a player, and to an extent, that's true in certain areas. But then he gets to start again against Panama. Doesn't look very good. The entire U.S. team doesn't look very good. And then starting again against Costa Rica last night on Wednesday, he and Yunus Musa would have been the only two players to start all three games. And, and obviously, there's a minutes component to that beyond who starts in every game. You can start and not play a lot of minutes. But I thought it was odd, I guess, that Ariola had started all of those games. And because of how I think most folks thought, myself included, Costa Rica were going to play in this game, sitting a little bit deeper and, and making your ability in tight spaces maybe a more important skill than your hard running. I thought it was a strange choice and ended up being kind of a non-factor because as you led your intro with Taylor, Tim Weah ends up coming in for Paul Areola in in the starting lineup just because Paul Areola gets a little bit of a knock in warm-ups. So Areola's sitting on the bench watching this game. Tim Weah gets in and I thought Weah had a lot of bright moments in this one. I appreciate everything you said there, Joe. I remain confused about Ariola being included in the starting 11. And Ariola is a player that I go back and forth on, that I've defended at times, I've been frustrated with at times, certainly had a lot of frustration after the Panama game. But he does bring certain things to this team, I think as you've already alluded to, like against the Costa Rica team we thought we would see, and I think we did see to some extent, it didn't make as much sense. I never even had him in my potential starting 11. If we're trying to see it from Burhalter's perspective, what do you think Ariola would have brought last night that had Burhalter including him in the 11? Pressure defensively, I think, is huge. Okay. And we saw the U.S. really press in this game a lot more aggressively, mm-hmm. I think, than they did against Panama and even a lot more aggressively than they did against Jamaica. So you have that defensive energy, number one. And number two, I, I think there's a value. Some A couple of people pointed this out on Twitter to me. There's value in bringing Tim Wea off the bench, right? If If we think this game could set up similar to the Jamaica game, imagining that it hasn't been played yet from Baralter's perspective, where Tim Weah did come off the bench and he was electric against a really tired and and crumbling Jamaica team. 
So you 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 might want to duplicate that circumstance and do the exact same thing, start the exact same front line and bring Weah off the bench in the 60th or the 70th minute. I can see the reasoning there. Ultimately, I'm kind of glad that that didn't play out because I do think Tim Weah is just a better player than Paul Areola at almost everything. Not not everything, but a lot of things. And I think his skill set fit this game probably better than Areola's would have. Not saying I agree with the idea if Burhalter had gone with it, but I think that's a really interesting point you make about Weah coming in as a sub because Ariola is not going to do some of the things that Timothy Weah will do and is not going to be as skillful or back himself to do four step overs and then take a shot. Uh, he's not going to take a shot from the angle that Weah did that eventually leads to the own goal. But you will have Ariola running at people, causing pressure and being pretty direct. And I could see how then, almost as like a change of pace, Weah comes in. And if you're a defender who's been used to this kind of hard running, scrapping for everything and suddenly there's a person standing up and doing step overs it could throw you off so i do get the the sort of the change that that could have led to and i and i think that's a good explanation for why Ariola would be in there i was more concerned about that than i was zach stefan and it did seem like twitter was pretty upset about zach stefan i don't know if we should worry too much about what twitter was upset about since twitter gets <laughs> upset about a lot of stuff but to me this was always in the plans that if you're not able to bring Stefan to Panama away because of uh, COVID restrictions and him having to go back in quarantine and they didn't want to do that. That's why McKinney wasn't there. That's why Robinson wasn't there. A few other players, I think, as well, uh, or at least one more. Uh, but so Stefan, it seemed like, was always going to be starting this game. I think it's just that because it comes on the heels of that Panama result and how shaky everything looked, it it plays into the narrative that like Berhalter's just like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and there's no real plan and he's just doing whatever he wants, whereas this feels like sticking to the plan to some extent. It it kind of does. And we talked before this window about how rotation and goal would not be a shock, right? The staff clearly still values Zach Steffen. And the only reason he wasn't more involved or wasn't involved at all in the last window is because of a back problem and then testing positive for COVID, right? So it wasn't like Matt Turner just straight up beat him out in camp. And that's why Turner was starting all of these games. I do question, though, before a must-win qualifying game, maybe not a must-win, but really, you'd really, really, really like to win against Costa Rica last night. I question changing something you don't have to, right? I, I think that's adding an extra element to things, another risk to something that could go wrong. So you have that factor, and then you also have the fact that Matt Turner is just a way better shot stopper than Zach Steffen. And and I don't know, thinking about that first goal that Costa Rica scored early on, I don't know if Matt Turner saves that. I don't. It's, it's impossible for me to know that. But do I feel more comfortable in saying that Matt Turner could have saved that than Zach Steffen? Absolutely. So right off the bat, 60 seconds into this game, I'm thinking, man, I don't know if that's the right decision. And it was not like that was a big shock to see Zach Steffen let a goal. And he's statistically just not an excellent shot stopper. That's proven out in the numbers. I posted some on Twitter yesterday and having some of this discourse there. I I just don't get this one, Taylor. Steffen is not on the level of Turner in a shot stopping sense. His ability on the ball is better. He has not been flawless, Steffen, with the U.S. men's national team with the ball at his feet. But he provided some value doing that in this game, whereas Turner really struggled with that against Panama and struggles with that on a regular basis. So again, there's a skills trade-off here between these two players. I just think that Matt Turner's skill is way more valuable than Zach Steffen. So I didn't I didn't love this move, Taylor, and yeah. I'm glad it didn't come back to hurt the U.S. Is it possible that you're coming at this from the perspective that Matt Turner is the number one and that Greg Berhalter is not? Because I do think that is also part of this, that I think we... Uh, on the show, have really enjoyed everything Matt Turner has done. Uh, you definitely, Joe, have have advocated for him to be the number one. I think I'm on board with that. But I think for Burhalter, who hasn't been able to see Stefan as much, 
maybe there was an idea of, well, it's still competitive. We still want to keep it open. I'm not saying anybody is the clear starter. And so if you're not doing that, then giving Zach Steffen one of the three games, I think, makes more sense. And I think also allowed him to maybe practice a bit more with what the U.S. was trying to do. And I think he did look better in possession. So, but I do wonder, Joe, if like your expectation that Matt Turner is the number one means that when he's not starting, you're going to be a little bit more like, uh-oh, things are different. Things aren't okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, one thing, one thing we certainly learned from this game is that the, the goalkeeper spot is not decided. Right. It is not okay. decided. And and I thought it was, I guess, and maybe that was naive. I guess it was naive in hindsight. But at this point, it is pretty clearly a competition between Zach Steffen and Matt Turner Taylor. Well, let's talk about the opening goal. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. It is Stefan looking confused. I would say Maya uh, being right up in his face is part of that. And obviously there's the offside shout that was correctly not given. Joe, I've watched this goal between 10 and 15 times. I did not <laughs> write it down uh, the exact number. I am struggling to blame anybody for this one. And and I don't think that's my bias. I don't think that's positivity, overwhelming, a negative moment. It's just, it's a lot of little things that happen. I think you could point fingers at a few players for not being as switched on or for little things going wrong. But for the most part, I think it's basically long ball, flicked on, chaos, confusion. And in that chaos and confusion, Fuller's able to kind of find some space, stay open, and eventually score. But I don't think I didn't see anybody lose Fuller. I didn't see like a few people pointed out Serginho Dest being lackadaisical in his defending. I think it's just a weird bounce. And then he tries to make up for it and just can't close the gap. But I have a hard time saying this is what went wrong on this goal. I leave it to you, Joe, to maybe be more specific if you want to. I don't know that any single person is entirely at fault for this. I think it's fair to maybe apportion blame a little Mm -hmm. bit here, right? Starting with Zach Steffen's headed clearance, maybe I actually thought that clearance was was fine, but there's a little bit of a play there. Actually, sorry, let me rewind one more step. Yeah, because I have have a little bit of a a step before that one. Really, Chris Richards is the guy that I think I'm most comfortable with saying Hmm. he could have shut this play down early, Um, and, and maybe that's because of some of his other actions in this game. I thought Chris Richards struggled in the air in this game and he was the center back dealing with Moya I believe as that long ball comes in from Calvo I think it was maybe it was Navas it was Calvo okay Calvo perfect and and Richards just doesn't really even get close to winning that ball which allows Costa Rica to get forward then Zach Steffen has to make that play then Dest is in the picture then the ball's coming into the back post and maybe Weston McKinney should drop down to Fuller there towards the back post maybe that should be the, the winger on that far side Either way, that doesn't happen. And then Zach Steffen, I think, is screened and doesn't see the shot until late, and he doesn't save it. Again, I'm not saying that Matt Turner would have saved that, but I, I would have felt more comfortable about Turner saving that than Steffen. There is just little things that go wrong here, and sometimes in soccer, it's just a domino effect of little tiny mistakes or things that just don't go quite your way. And after 60 seconds, Taylor, the U.S. was in a really tough spot in this game. Yes, and I was pretty panicked. Uh, I actually, I assumed this would be one of those, like, coverage starts at 7, kickoff is like 7.05. Oh, so so you're, just getting in. In the, you're just getting in the mix of things. You're just getting ready. You're sitting down waiting, uh, for, waiting for the thing to start. I came in 1-0 down. I came oh. in a minute and 30 in thinking that I had a couple more minutes and was like, what has happened now? That can't be right. And then was really happy that I had chosen not to look at Twitter for the first half. Uh, yeah, so in the moment, I was pretty panicked. Obviously, hindsight, knowing the result, knowing that the U.S. ends up getting the win and re-watching removes some of that panic. And instead... I noticed an an interesting pattern, or at least a pattern that I thought was interesting, uh, because this sequence that leads to the goal is replicated about four minutes later in the fifth minute. We get the same exact pattern, except two different things happen. So 
I'll get to that in a moment by talking about this goal because, yes, it's Calvo from deep playing a long ball, but it's the U.S. front line sitting off about 10 yards, 15 yards from Calvo. So he has time to pick his head up and ping that ball long. I think the U.S. still had an aggressive game plan from the start. And so I think it's uh, it's either Borges or no, it's Venegas. Venegas drops deep as though he's going to get the ball to his feet and Robinson pursues him. And that's why when that kick comes in, why Richards loses that header, I would argue, is because he's behind Maya. And I think Robinson is supposed to be kind of cleaning up everything in front of Maya. But because he's followed Venegas, there's a little bit of a gap. Now that ball is flicked on and then the play develops from there. In the fifth minute, same exact pattern, except two differences. The first is that Ricardo Pepe sprints out and shuts down Calvo. So Calvo has to take a touch wide, then hit the ball under pressure. And Robinson, instead of tracking Venegas this time, it's a front and follow situation with Robinson and Richards. They're either side of Maya and Robinson just wins the header. U.S. get possession and away we go. And so those things, I think, were probably supposed to happen a little bit more quickly. I I can blame them a little bit, but also understand why in the first minute you're still figuring things out. You're getting your footing. I don't have as much of an issue there. And then Fuller basically makes the run on because he thinks the flick is going to come and then he thinks there'll be a pass in behind. And when that pass isn't delivered, Anthony Robinson, who's tracking Fuller, goes to his normal position to pick up uh, arriving runners. And that leaves Fuller open. McKinney spots it, but I think has to sprint about 20 yards and can't end up getting there on the end of it. So it's little breakdowns. It's little moments. You can blame different things. You could blame, I guess, Dest for not immediately sprinting back so that there was an offside decision to be made. Instead, Dest is off the pitch, but that means he still counts. Turner, or excuse me, Stefan getting screened. I hadn't really thought about what would have happened if Turner were in there. And that is an interesting point, Joe. And that is a sort of a good what if for as we go forward. But I think... Again, I go back to it's a tough one. It's a difficult one. I wish we had not conceded in that way that early. There is always the argument that maybe that's the the spark the U.S. needed to be able to fight back. But when they're down 1-0 inside the first minute and then we get the stat that they have lost six of their last seven in World Cup qualifiers when conceding first, I wasn't feeling great. But we're going to talk about how the U.S. pulled it back. Joe, first, let's take a break. Then we'll get back into it. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Uh, while we took our break, I was politely informed by Joe that it is what, Joe? Moya, not, not, not Maya. Maya. This That's is okay. where my handwriting okay. has let me down. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't go with handwritten notes. Um, uh, Anthony DeChico Jr. Uh, messaged me on Twitter to say that I need to get a specific type of notebook that has like the field on one yeah, page. And then they're so on cool. The other. 
I might need one of those, Joe, because hand drawing it and then writing in tiny, tiny, like cramped font is is not helping. But people don't want to hear about my handwriting and my <laughs> pronunciation mistakes. They want to hear about how the U.S. turned this around. And I would say to some extent they didn't really turn it around because I think the way they were intending to play is how they played pretty much the entire game. I, I saw a lot of intensity. I saw much more pressing and I saw much more energetic passing before we get to how the U S got their equalizer. Joe, what did you make of the response uh, on your rewatch in those, maybe the 15 minutes following the goal? I thought the response was good, Taylor, to be totally honest with you. I thought the U S settled into rhythm, mm-hmm. not immediately in possession against Costa Rica's mid to low four, four, two block, but they did settle in eventually. They were trying to do some creative things on the ball early on in this game. There was a lot of interchanging and attacking play down the U.S.'s right side with Dest and Musa as that eight, Dest as the right back, and then Tim Way as the winger. They were moving into different spots, and, and the rotations weren't entirely crisp at the start, right? There were a couple of turnovers right in the sixth or seventh minute, like almost back-to-back turnovers as those mm-hmm. players were trying to figure out each other, I think. Um, but then, but then things started to clean up a little bit and the U S started to get their wingers into good spots. You've got Tim Weah's third man run off of, uh, Destin Pepe, I believe. And, and Weah makes that run into the box and gets on the ball in a good spot. You have other attacking moments. You've got nice switches from Weston McKinney and Eunice Musa and even Tyler Adams to an extent. All of those guys really trying to shift Costa Rica's block around. And I thought the U S did a pretty good job of that in the following 15 minutes after that goal which was a concern of mine, to be honest. I didn't know how this team was going to react because if you're Costa Rica, at this point, it makes sense to pack it in. And I don't think they did nearly as much of that as they should. And when they did pack it in, I don't think they were as clean and crisp in their own defensive movement relative to the U.S.'s movement in possession. But still, I was encouraged by the U.S.'s ability to create chances in the first half of a game where against Jamaica, which I think is a roughly similar level of opponent in certain respects, the U.S. just didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah, and I think when I watched the game with the emotion running high the first watch, seeing some of the misplaced passes in the in the ensuing 15 minutes and seeing sort of Tyler Adams pinging a long ball sort of to nobody and really aggressive forward passing not coming off, I had it written down as like, we're seeing the nerves again. We're seeing young players feeling like, oh no, it's happening again. And on the rewatch, it like basically it's not explaining it away. But to me, when they do that thing, that same style from start to finish, it's no longer nerves. It's that they're just trying to calibrate. And I think they figure out how to how to do certain things better as the game goes on and things get tighter. And then some of those passes that I initially attributed to nerves to me, it's just like, oh, that guy tried to play that ball one second too early, or that run happened two seconds too late, and as they fine-tuned it and started to figure it out, those passes started to connect, those runs started to make more sense or started to work out more naturally, and I think the U.S. really grew into the game pretty quickly, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it seemed like there was a unified game plan, which is the thing that you and I have wanted, Joe, I'm sure many other fans have wanted too, but we've seen this sort of like, we're trying to possess, but also we're pinging long balls out of the back, but also we're running in behind, but also the the front line is supposed to drop in and facilitate possession. You can't do all those things and have the game make sense because they're different game plans. And I think uh, in explaining what went wrong in Jamaica on Twitter, I was talking about bringing on Christian Roldan and not that he was the problem, but that like it was almost as though. It was like three different bands were playing at the same time, and Greg Berhalter brought in Roldan to like change the tempo on the drums for one of the bands. But it's still three different songs being played. Changing up one little thing isn't going to make a difference. Here, when you have center backs 
having as much of a focus on building out of that out of the back and possessing as I've seen since like that game against Mexico when the U.S. was doing it to an almost ridiculous degree and getting punished for it. I haven't seen them play that way like to my mind since then, but I saw it last night with just a devotion to playing it out, keeping the ball, keeping possession. But when they would turn it over, I don't recall the U.S. being as aggressive in the press and aggressive in the step as I saw last night. Tyler Adams especially was the one who was doing Tyler Adams things and patrolling and stepping in front of defenders and then a good relationship with Weston McKinney where Adams routinely was winning a ball or like getting a foot to it and intercepting and then that interception would fall to McKinney and McKinney would then settle for the most part. But just the <laughs> overall way the U.S. was trying to play, McKinney dropping deeper, the fullback stepping high, but then you had like Costa Rica had to make decisions about do we follow McKinney or do we follow the fullback? And if you choose wrong or even just make that decision, one of those is now open in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise. And there was better movement, better intensity. And I think a lot of that is how we get to the U.S. equalizer. And and before we do that, because I know that's where you're leading us here, Taylor, I do want to say, I think the U.S. created chances with that counter pressure that you're talking about Mm -hmm. really well in this game. And you mentioned Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney as well, Yunus Musa getting in there. That midfield was physically dominant in this game. There's a moment where Musa just completely boxes out Brian Ruiz and it looks like it looks like some kid's older brother or or maybe a son (laughs) just grew and and finally got bigger than his dad Um, and that's that's exactly what that play reminded me of on the near side in the first half Yunus Musa just looks massive and Brian Ruiz just looks kind of over it at that point and and fair play to him in that in that regard but the U.S.'s counter pressure was excellent and there's this moment in the 13th minute where excuse me, the 14th minute, mm-hmm. with the U.S. counterpress, Tyler Adams wins the ball back, Pepe ends up playing a nice little bounce pass back, and the, and the sequence ends with Weston McKinney getting in the box, and I think he gets a shot off that's blocked, and, and McKinney always kind of looked a bit out of control when he was running towards goal with the ball in this game, it looked a little out of control with the ball at his feet as well, but you can just see how the counterpressure would take advantage of a disorganized Costa Rica after Costa Rica would try to play, they couldn't connect between their, their back line and their midfield line in the forward line, there was this big gap there the U.S. took full advantage of that. I think counterpressing could really be a way that this team creates chances yep. going forward and has been in the past, too. But we're looking at a team that still does struggle in part to create with the ball against a lower block. I think that's still fair to say. And so having a group with a midfield that is this aggressive and can win this many balls in midfield, I think that could be huge for the U.S. going forward. And continuing with the idea of having to have a unified game plan, I think if we look at the Panama game again, even if we had had this intensity to the counter press, I think as soon as that ball is won, there's a, a somebody's putting their foot on the ball, then there's a, a couple more touches, then there's a pass, we wait for everybody to get into their positions where they're supposed to be, and then we try to build an attack. But by then, the opponent is able to get into its defensive shape, isn't really uncomfortable, doesn't have to kind of gamble on what they're doing. And in this game, as soon as that ball is won, it is, the U.S. is away. And it's quick passing. It's one and two touch. And a major thing for me, a tiny thing, but an important thing, is the role of Ricardo Pepe here. Because Pepe is leading the line. He checks away. He stretches the back line. And then he checks two and plays a almost perfect, if not perfect, through ball one time. Like, it's, a, it's the reverse kind of ball where the pass is coming into him and it ends up going, like, over his right shoulder. But it goes perfectly into the path of Weston McKinney while splitting at least two defenders, maybe more than that. And 
the quickness of that of the movement to check away to check two, but then the awareness of where his teammates are and how that play is developing, and then the ability to execute. Loved that from Ricardo Pepe. Loved the win from Adams. Loved the combination from McKinney and Aronson. Would have loved if it had ended in a goal. Ends in a corner <laughs> instead. But we do get our goal, Joe, and you're right. I was leading us there. I want to talk about that because... I would also argue this is sort of the U.S. able to get a goal against a bunkered opponent in a manner of speaking because Costa Rica are able to collapse the numbers after the USA break. But we could talk about the break. We could talk about the shot. We could talk about what they did to open up some space when Costa Rica had numbers in the box. Joe, where would you like to take us? Uh, I want to talk about the shot first, okay. Taylor, which is kind of let's go back like, in. Let's not go in reverse usually order. how I, like I operate. Yeah let's, yeah, let's go backwards here. Just because I have all caps in my notes for this strike from Sergino Dest. I don't people. I don't use all caps a lot here. <laughs> uh, I, I used all caps on this one. This is just an incredible goal from Sergino Dest. Yes, As we learned after the game, his left shoe, which is the, the the foot that he scores with, the shoe on the foot that he scores with, was untied as he takes this <laughs> shot. He cuts in on his left foot <laughs> against Matarita and just hits an incredible shot towards goal that nestles in the back of the net. It beats Kaylor Navas. I, it is unreal. It's one of the best goals that I've seen in a long time from the U.S. or from any player. Uh, it's insane, and it comes off of, as you're saying, Taylor, this really nice attacking sequence. There's good movement in the back. There's good buildup in that area. Costa Rica are drawn forward. Costa Rica, when they pressed, left a lot of open space in this game. The U.S. took full advantage of that. They had some quality and composure on the ball to break out of the back. Aronson eventually gets on the ball, and that left side plays it up to Tim Weah. Weah switches it over to Musa, which was a big theme of this game. Not the Weah to Musa switch, necessarily, but just switches a play to shift Costa Rica's block, and really to have the ball move faster than the 10 outfield men for Costa Rica. And it worked to a T over and over again in this one. Musa gets it, plays it back to Dest, and then Dest does his thing. It is it is a phenomenal bit of soccer, Taylor. It is. And it made me really, really excited, not just because that goal is incredible, which it is, but because on the rewatch, a little thing I noticed, uh, Taylor Twelman, uh, live in the broadcast, and credit to him for it, was pointing out that the U.S. movement in that final third wasn't still wasn't very good. And there wasn't a ton of variety to it. They weren't doing different things. It was sort of same-same runs, hoping something would happen. And you need people to sort of be evaluating, see what's happening, and then adjust what they're trying to do to basically capitalize upon individual mistakes or individual moments. And Dest is standing up Matarita here. He's got a little bit of a gap there, but I don't think he's able to get this shot off if, again, credit to Sergio Dest, but a little bit of credit to Weston McKinney here because McKinney is standing to Dest's left when Dest is standing up Matarita. McKinney then gestures like he's going to run, make that diagonal run across Dest and sort of towards the uh, corner flag for the ball in behind into the 18. And then he could do like the touch to the inline cross or maybe he like tries to go for the low percentage sort of turn and shot. But he makes that run, but he's pr- first pointed to it. And so I think it's Borges tracking McKinney. Borges is in front of McKinney, so he's between McKinney and the goal. But when McKinney makes that run, Borges goes with him. Now space opens up. And critically, Matarita, who sees that McKinney pointing, this is where I want the ball, probably hears him do so, shuffles over to his left, thinking, ha-ha, that pass is no longer on. And McKinney making that run, pointing where he wants the ball, and then and then continuing with the run— pulls two defenders out, and that's where that space opens up. So it, it is one of the few moments I can remember in which a U.S. player sort of adapts to the moment, makes a run that pulls two players out, opens up space for someone else to get a shooting opportunity, and then it ends up being a world-class shooting opportunity at that, even with the laces untied. But those two little moments made me very, very happy. 
I love that, Taylor. Way to, way to spot that run from McKinney. I did not notice that. And I tweeted out about Matarita's lack of defending. And that movement from McKinney has is, is got to be at least a part of why he is so slow to adjust to Death's movement in the box. That's a great sequence. And I love that you highlighted the U.S.'s lack of, I, I think, diversification mm-hmm. in their runs in the box. Like, there's, there's not enough variety in how they're moving. Yeah. There's a moment in the 54th minute. Yeah, this is fast-forwarding a lot in this game, but a similar idea to what you're getting at. After Musa does a really great bit of Musa-ing in, in midfield, drawing three <laughs> opponents, then he plays the ball over to Weston McKinney, who then plays it wide left to Anthony Robinson. At this point in the sequence in the second half, there's three or four players in the box, and they're all just kind of standing there. No one's really making a run, and all these players are kind of just in a horizontal line. You could draw a line right across where they're standing. There's not a lot of depth in how they're attacking. And so Robinson crosses it in, and there's just no danger that comes from this sequence. That's probably on the extreme end of the moments you're getting at, Taylor. But one thing I do want to see from the U.S. in the November window and going forward is more variety in that space, more aggressive movement, finding gaps and creating space with your movement. That's one thing that Paul Areola did very well against Jamaica. So there's another bit of value to his game there. I think this could be a spot where the U.S. improves and they can get the ball into the final third, even against a bunker team, because that's what they're giving you. But then finding ways to create little advantages in that tight space, that could be where some of the diversification of runs comes in. I would be fine with uh, more diverse runs, or we could just have Serginho Dest hit bangers from 40 yards That's out. cool Whatever. with me as well. Either one's yeah. fine. Yeah, that's but, fine. But I, the thing I would like the most is for the U.S. to continue to play the way they played in the lead-up to this goal, because that's the other thing I wanted to spotlight. It's an 11-pass sequence that uh, gets way into the position to cross, and then we go from there. So I, w- I won't say it's not like a cross intentionally for for Yunus Musa so I can't I have to stop the uh, pass count there but backing it up it is the United States coming under pressure it's Costa Rica I wouldn't say like with a unified press so that everybody's covered but that's kind of how it works is they're trying to press they're trying to make the US uncomfortable this is where I thought Stefan was noticeably different to me than Turner because Turner I think bangs some of those passes long Also, probably Turner doesn't have the immediate movement and the immediate open options that Stefan had in this game. Uh, This one, this stands out to me because I think the ball goes to Tyler Adams and he plays it wide. And then there's a quick kind of sequence around. It ends up with Stefan again. Stefan plays it to Robinson. Robinson heads it to Robinson. (laughs) That gets confusing. And Robinson heads it to Richards. And then it's pass, pass, pass. It goes to Adams. Adams turns under pressure and away we go. But I tweeted that clip from the Panama game of Kelvin Acosta slowly coming back to get the ball off Turner, and then he takes a touch, and then he takes another touch, and then he plays it wide, and then there's some more touches, and then the U.S. carry it for, and it's just so slow. And contrasting that with this sequence, and Adams is basically in the spot that they had to wait for Kellen Acosta to get to before they could make that pass. Adams is already there, which means other midfielders are then making their runs back and checking into space. That pulls Costa Rican players out. But then the kind of dedicated focus on keeping possession and staying calm, I I think against Panama, this ball just gets hoofed long immediately. And even when Zimmerman comes in in this game, there are moments when I could see him like shape like, oh, I want to kick this ball so hard so long, but I won't. I'll pass the ball. But you could tell that like he was used to what they were doing against Panama. Very different in this game and the way the U.S. played out. Tyler Adams turning under pressure playing it forward to Weston McKinney, Weston McKinney then turning, playing it to Brendan Aronson, and then Aronson playing it down the line for Wea. It's just really silky. It's really smooth. It's really fast. And the whole team is ready for it. The whole team is clearly prepped for it because when Adams plays the ball to McKinney and McKinney starts to turn, as soon as McKinney is shaping to turn, Sergio Dest starts his sprint. And Dest ends up being the one who is probably in the best position. If Wea had hit the cross a little bit earlier, he's making that sort of 
the sort of run you, we've seen often where the crosser bends it around the defenders, but into the path of the runner, the runner hits it first time. Wea takes one more touch, and that's kind of what kills it there, but then is able to find Musa. But that Dest is immediately alive to the opportunity and then sprints forward 70 yards to get on the end of one or theoretically get on the end of one and then still ends up scoring because he recycles his run. I just think there's a lot to really love about this goal. So many good moments and and good. There were a lot of good passes out of the back from Zach Steffen in this game, to be totally fair to him. I don't know necessarily that this is one of those excellent passes. It takes a lot for Anthony Robinson to control this there ball. There is that. But but it's nice. It's generally nice build-up play from the United States. They break You're forward. You're right. You're right. I'm, I'm conflating two things. He has another one earlier in the game when he is coming under pressure, could have kicked it long, Steffen, and instead just slides a pass, like right past the, uh, the pressing Costa Rican player. Yeah. I think it was... Uh, Moya, uh, not Maya, uh, and <laughs> and finds Adams. I think I'm conflating those two things. You're right. But still, it's a nice bit of play from the U.S. And we saw just one glimpse of it against Panama in the second half. And in this game, we saw it more and more often. Now, at the same time, Taylor, we did see sort of a Kawanakosta-esque moment from Weston McKennie later on in this first hmm. half in buildup that nearly gave Costa Rica slash should have given Costa Rica a penalty kick. The ref was extremely lenient in this game. So we saw the U.S. very much leaning into that principle of play. And, and again, we can sort of see why Barrelter would start Stefan in a moment like that. Not that I agree with that choice, but the reasoning is pretty clear. When you have uh, an emphasis on building out of the back, it does kind of make sense in that way. We see the U.S. building up, and a lot of times it worked out for them. There, there is that 37th-minute sequence where Weston McKinney just doesn't turn. He ends up getting the ball back after he doesn't turn into a acres of space and then he plays the ball forward and it gets intercepted and Costa Rica attack and and use Musa kind of slides the ball away slides and, and gets the ball away as Costa Rica are breaking into the box he doesn't really clear it and so then Chris Richard slides in and brings an attacker down in the box for Costa Rica as far as my eyes can tell and that could have been 2-1 for Costa Rica on that penalty call if the ref had given it. It's a nervy moment for the U.S., and those moments are going to come uh, when you're trying to build up. It, it, you'd like to see that one cleaned up a little bit, though, Taylor. I would like to get to the, the second goal, but since you brought up McKinney, I want to stick with him. But first, we're going to take one more break, then we'll be back to talk about McKinney, talk about the goal, talk about the end of the game, and where we go from here. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe. Uh, I am confused about Weston McKinney, so I want to have this conversation (laughs) now because I liked so much of what I saw from him, and yet... He, more than any other player on the pitch, had me writing down, like, is this another issue that we saw against Jamaica where the field wasn't watered enough and the ball wasn't moving? Because his first touch kept popping up, or he kept having to do this little, like, touch-touch thing where he would take one and then have to take another one really quickly because, like, the first little micro-touch would be, like, slightly outside of him when he meant to take it forward, or he meant to take it outside, and instead he took it forward, and then he has to correct. And... He doesn't often get punished for that, but sometimes, as you've already mentioned, he he does or could be punished even worse if things were called correctly. Like, 
I, I don't know entirely what to make of Weston McKinney because I feel like his game was so good and he did so many things so well. But then there is the first touch. There is sometimes the complacency and just the slowness on the ball that can cause problems. Overall, I really liked what I saw in his intensity and aggression. But I'm wondering if you have a more nuanced take on Weston McKinney. Well, Taylor, I think you just described Weston McKinney's game. I think that's exactly what you just did. I don't think I'm not sure how much new how much new information we got on Weston McKinney Mm -hmm. in this game. He was awesome at a lot of things. He had good ball winning in midfield uh, and then would drive the ball forward. He would play these really nice switches in in attack and that would get the ball from the U.S.'s left side to the right side. He would drop in to create 3v2 advantages against Costa Rica's front two and that helped the U.S. progress the ball against that 4-4-2 block. He would do all of those things. And then the next minute, he would lose the ball as he's driving forward on the dribble. He would play an under-hit switch, and that does lead to the second goal. So if he's playing 8-D chess, then credit to him. Uh, he'd hit these under-hitted switches. Under, under-hitted. Oh, good gracious <laughs> me. Taylor, wow, that is a good one. He'd play these under-hit switch passes. And then he'd lose the ball and not turn out of pressure. This yeah. is... This is Weston McKinney, and I think we saw the full, we had the full Weston McKinney experience in this game because he was on the ball so much. We saw the full range of his skill sets and and his weaknesses as well. So I think this is just another, maybe the best example that we've seen so far, or at least in a long time, but a really good example of Weston McKinney's game right now. Is that basically what it's going to be, do you think? Because... I I see it as like to have his level of intensity and the aggressiveness that he plays with, you you have to take those risks. You have to sort of be okay with a loose touch or because like I I, I don't think you can play this like controlled possession, good technical game, but then still have this kind of intensity and anarchy to the way you want to press and attack at times. Like I, I don't think the two can exist simultaneously. So is it maybe that we just have to take the bad with the good because there is so much good there? Uh, maybe, yeah, and I, I wish that wasn't the case. The Weston McKinney right now is, is 23, and I, I don't know how much more he's going to improve his skill set on the ball because for me that's the biggest thing that I'd like to see improve. Just cleaning up 10% of those touches and he becomes an entirely different and better player. Uh, there's too many moments in this game where he doesn't turn, doesn't look, doesn't drive forward, or just gets on the ball and loses it because he's sloppy. And I'd love to see those things eliminated. And I think they can be to an extent, or at least a small percentage of them can. I'm not sure that we're going to see Weston McKinney evolve a ton more as a player between now and when he retires. I mean, he'll devolve, he'll devolve as he gets older and loses that step. I'd love yep. to be wrong about that, and I hope I am. But I think I think it might be a case of we kind of have learned about Weston McKinney. We know what he's good at. We know what he's not so good at. And now it's about Greg Berhalter putting Weston McKinney in the best spots for him to, to him to succeed on a personal level and for him to help this team. So two things there. I would say this. There is an argument, at least I would make the argument, that if he loses that step or as he loses that step, that can be the thing that facilitates the change in your game. Because true, if true. you... Yeah, I made a heavy touch, but I have the closing speed to make up for it, and and I don't usually get punished for it. Then you're going to kind of keep doing that. As soon as you start losing those those duels after the heavy touch, because you don't have that acceleration or that quickness, that maybe requires you to change up ha- like that first touch and work a little bit more on your technical ability. So that's one possibility. But the other thing I would say is that he still has so many aspects of his game that I continue to be impressed by or continue to learn. One of which is I just, I don't think of him as the fastest player, certainly not the fastest player on the ball, but in the 68th minute, he has the, the sequence 
Uh, Stefan collects a loose pass or loose ball, rolls it out to McKinney. So McKinney starts with it right at the top of his 18. And he carries it 60 or 70 yards forward at at like a full sprint while controlling the ball. And then while still at a full sprint, hits a an inch perfect, probably 30 to 40 yard diagonal with his left foot over a defender and into the path of, I think, Serginio Dest. It might have been Timothy Weah. But either way, that, see, I just didn't see, I didn't know he had that like, club in his bag, mm. had that tool in his kit. Uh, and so to see him pull that off, I think it was just a reminder that, like, yes, there's going to be moments where you have to kind of try to figure out what he was doing or why he made the decision he did. But other times, Weston McKinney is going to carry the game forward and make things happen and be that sort of fighting presence I think the U.S. so desperately needs so often. So this game for me was frustrating at times with the way McKinney played, but more often than not, just an exciting game. Obviously, the win helps with that. And even the combination of Adams and McKinney, uh, I think they, between them, had 166 completed passes, 80 for Adams, 86 for McKinney. Uh, adding it up for Costa Rica, their top four passing players, Cabo, Borges, Duarte, and Matarita, had 157 passes. So the U.S.'s top two passers from midfield outpassed the top four for Costa Rica. That makes me happy. And last thing on McKinney, his mobility and where he was taking up his starting position also was interesting because I think against Panama for sure, we had Kellen Acosta sitting deep, two midfielders ahead, and it seemed like they were they had almost like trained that the game where you're not allowed to enter certain zones, like you have to stay in your zone and wait for the ball to enter it, then you can get to it and then you can make a play. And so there was just so much static standing, waiting for the ball to come, waiting for the ball to be progressed forward. Whereas in this game, McKinney routinely in the build was deeper than Adams and yep. would sort of move out wide into the kind of like left center back spot or like the the gap between the left center back and the uh, left back, Anthony Robinson. But that let Robinson move forward 20, 30, 40 yards. McKinney then gets to the ball. If Costa Rica haven't followed him, then he has time and space to drive forward. If they do follow him, it probably means that either Tyler Adams is now open or Anthony Robinson is open. And either way, it just pulls Costa Rica out while moving the, the the train forward, essentially. And I felt like that was a thing that McKinney did a lot. And then when he would get the ball and somebody would follow him and those passes weren't on, he would lay it off and then he would sprint forward, take that defender with him. And another big difference here was that both center backs were then willing to carry the ball forward themselves. And sometimes that was... Uh, with no pressure, and they just had 15 yards to to dribble before they they did come into pressure and would pass it. Sometimes they had immediate pressure, but still evaded and carried forward. And every single time you're making Costa Rica send somebody else that they weren't planning to send, step out a little bit more than they wanted to, pull a defender out, pull a midfielder out. And all of that just creates uncertainty and it creates pockets of space. And so the more the U.S. did that, I think the more uncomfortable Costa Rica were. But also the more they had to run and the more they had to scramble. Yes, it's a very old team. Yes, they're not the freshest of legs. But you still have to tire them out before you can capitalize on that that age and that fatigue. And the U.S., I think, really wore Costa Rica down. I would have liked them to wear them down a bit more so that this was more of a comfortable victory in the end. But important to note that in the end, it is a victory. So let's talk about that goal, Joe. You already kind of set it up because it is a very weird sort of knuckle puck a uh, slice <laughs> of a cross from Weston McKinney, and I think that's why Fuller isn't able to get his body behind it, and it kind of goes off of his ribs as opposed to just hitting it with his chest and settling. But it's credit to Wea for taking the shot first time and just, I wouldn't say burying it, but hitting it well enough that it ends up going in. But also credit to Serginho Dest for pouncing on the opportunity, but then 
knowing the run that Weah is going to make and just waiting until Weah has developed the run just enough so that when that ball comes in, it's in perfect shooting position, and it's a well-hit through ball. It's a good finish. Uh, it doesn't end up being a goal for Timothy Weah, though I think I will remember it as being so. Uh, Joe, your thoughts on that winner? I just appreciate that Tim Weah, um, my alter ego, <laughs> read the Daryl DK chapter on how to yep. hit a soccer ball as hard as you can. That's yep. what the strike reminded me of. It's Daryl DK and what Daryl DK always does in MLS and, and what he did in the championship for Barnsley is get the ball on his right foot and hit it as hard as he can towards goal. And, and for some reason, that's been working for him. And that's kind of what Tim Weah does here. He takes it first time, which is brilliant because if he doesn't, he's not going to have the angle to shoot anymore. He's going to be too close to the end line. And Tim Weah just hits the ball as hard as he can. Well, maybe not as hard as he can, but it looks pretty hard to me, Taylor. And and one yeah. other thing that I think is important on this play is that it's not Kaylor Navas in goal. And I, like we said with Matt Turner and Zach Steffen earlier for Costa Rica's goal, I have no idea if Kaylor Navas saves this or not. But when Kaylor Navas doesn't come back out for the second half, back out onto the field for the second half with that uh, abductor injury, I believe it was. It's Lionel Morera in goal for Costa Rica, who is very much not Kaylor Navas, both in name and ability. So the U.S. are a little bit fortunate here with Fuller not being able to do a basic defensive action and, and bring that under hit switch from McKenney down. And then it is a nice bit of, of play from Destin away on that right side, but maybe fortunate again that that ball sneaks in after Morera gets a hand to it. Either way, Taylor, I do think this goal at least to an extent, was coming for the U.S. I didn't think it would come this way. I actually thought it would have, would have come in the first half as the U.S. were really pushing as that first half wore on. They were getting on the ball. They were creating some chances or at least getting into dangerous spots. And then the U.S. lost a bit of control in the second half right before, I would argue, McKinney doesn't turn and it's the Chris Richards phantom penalty call, no penalty call in the box. Then Costa Rica get a bunch of corners and they are threatening. Zach Stevan has to make a save in that first half. And the U.S. at that point are maybe, maybe just trying to get into halftime level and come out stronger in the second half. And the U.S. maybe don't come out quite as strong and quite as sharp in possession in that second 45, in my view. They're still creating some chances, and ultimately they get this goal, which is so, so, so huge for them. Because as we've said, the three points here are are incredibly important. They are. But Joe, you have kind of talked me back into being just a little bit more cautious with my praise for this team. Because to the point about Moreira versus Keylor Navas... We don't really know how much of a difference that made because, like, there aren't that many more shots that I can think of. There's Wea has another one, and I think it stood out to me because that time he does take a touch and I think takes two touches. The second touch does sort of kill his angle, so he ends up shooting from a really tight angle. Aside from that, there's the Pepe. Maybe he gets a shove in the back or it gets clipped, but no penalty given there. There's not... A, a ton more I can really remember. I'm sure there are shots here and there, but there's there's not much that it was like, oh, he stood on his head, or oh, Navas would have saved that, but Costa Rica lost 5-1. So the lack of consistent shooting opportunities as the game goes on probably is something to be slightly worried about, just to keep in our minds and, and remember as a thing that we would like to see more of, yeah. or we would like to see the U.S. develop a bit better. Yeah, and, and I want to almost... I guess, push back against my own sort of measuredness here, Taylor, because I agree. I agree with everything you just said, and I think that's something important to have in the back of our minds. This team is still not a juggernaut in the attack, and even if they were in this game, we should still be measured because let's not forget just how awful, awful that Panama game was. So there's a call for balance here. There's a call for balance here. At the same time, 
I think the U.S. got into attacking spots in this game that we really haven't seen them get into a whole lot in World Cup qualifying so far. They would get into those Man City zones, those outer corridors of the box, the right channel or the left channel of the box. It would be just outside that space. Sometimes it'd be inside the inside the 18. And Tim Weah and, and Brendan Aronson would get in those spots. Sergio Dest would get into those spots. Even you'd sometime have, sometimes have the eights getting forward into those spots. The problem for the U.S. was once they got there, they just didn't put a lot of shots on goal. Right. One one thing that kind of was bothering me in this game, and, and Taylor, I'm curious to watch it going forward, was I thought Brendan Aronson almost always would get the ball in those spots, and then there'd be no real production after that. It would be an extra touch. It would be a sloppy bit of delivery. And so the U.S. would get into those spots, and I'm using Aronson as an example, and then the play would just kind of die. And it didn't always die, but there were a lot of moments where they'd play the cut back, and Costa Rica would cut it out because they had numbers in the box. So there'd be moments where a player like Aronson would get on the ball and try to loft it towards the back post and nothing would come off in that sequence. So that's, that is a negative, but there's a positive behind that. There's this undercurrent of positivity when you get into those spots. That means you are doing some things, right? You are breaking through that block and getting into these these optimal assist spaces, right? Where if you're going to get into the space, you have a better chance of, of putting a pass together that's going to lead to a shot than you do in almost any other spot on the field. So that did leave me with a nice taste in my mouth, even if the U.S. didn't go from those Man City zones or, or from those good attacking spots, if they didn't go right from there to putting a lot of shots on goal. So, Joe, let's talk about some individuals then, because we've talked about the goals, some of the bigger moments. Uh, there are other things that we could talk about as the game uh, closes. But for the most part, uh, my notes are about like the, the crowd being great, the U.S. continuing to do interesting things, maybe being overly intent on passing out. And sometimes uh, there's the obvious example when Miles Robinson has the pass that gets intercepted, but then he uses his speed to make up for it. So that's good but also bad. I think he has another couple as the game is closing where he tries to play out and gets robbed or passes it out of bounds. I didn't love that. But I want to talk about some players I did like or some players we didn't like. And my note is that Tyler Adams played so well in this game, he made Kellen Acosta's performance against Panama look even worse because he just he did everything that we want Tyler Adams to do that we know he can do and that makes him in my opinion the most important player in the US pool. I don't think there's anyone else who can do what he does, who can patrol the ground that he does, that can step and win but not just constantly commit fouls. He knows, I mean he does, and everyone's going to concede fouls, but he knows for the most part when he can step and make a play versus when he can just sort of apply that pressure, let the defender know he's there and not let them turn or force them to play backwards. But then his willingness to turn under pressure, to play into pressure, to carry the ball into pressure and then play out of it. Uh and even just getting in people's ear. There's the moment in the first half when I think it's a corner for Costa Rica is headed out. Aronson and Wea have a moment of indecision about who's going to pick the ball up. And in that moment, neither one does. Costa Rica do, and they end up getting a, a pretty good shooting chance out of it. And Adams turns and just unloads on the two of them. And that's what I want. I want someone holding their teammates accountable. I thought this was an incredible performance from Tyler Adams, and it's why he is number one on my uh, roster. Adams, good. I have so I have so few notes on him, which maybe says something about my note-taking ability. I have this great line-breaking ball that he plays in the 23rd minute. I think he sort of looks off a defender, maybe uses his hips a little bit to, to confuse Costa Rica, and then splits the lines. He was good in his movement offensively to create that 3v2 advantage in the back that helped the U.S. play forward. He was good in the counter-press. But, I mean, these are kind of just Adam's things. Maybe the line-breaking pass a little bit less so. But still, he's he's phenomenal. He wasn't flawless in this game. He still takes a little too long to turn if I'm really going to nitpick. And, and you'd like to see him just get the ball in the half turn and drive forward and build up. But, man, 
it's hard to complain about what Tyler Adams brings. He is an incredibly important part of this team. And I, I'd say a lot of similar things about the rest of this midfield group, Taylor. We talked at length about yep. Weston McKinney, so I, I'm not going to dive back into that hole. But Yunus Musa, I thought was excellent yep. in this game. And Costa Rica is probably the perfect opponent for him because they make him look even more dominant and physically <laughs> aggressive than he already is, right? This is one of those cases where I think we can see just how poor Costa Rica were relative to the United States in this game. Musa was just getting on the ball and, and cutting right through them. 12th minute, 19th minute, 21st minute, 31st minute, 48th minute. That's not even all of them. Those are all sequences where Musa gets on the ball under some degree of pressure or gets on the ball and beats a defender and then draws other folks to him. He's huge in that regard, and we've talked about it at length in the past. We saw it on full display, though, last night. I loved what he brought with the ball at his feet. I loved what he brought defensively and in counterpressure. We kind of mentioned that as well. This this MMA or man midfield, I think I'm going with MMA. Taylor, you're welcome to, to choose either one of those uh, abbreviations, acronyms, whatever they're called. Um, but man, this midfield was so fun to watch, and I, I think we can now see a pretty clear drop-off between the yep. first three guys and everyone else. And that's both good because it means the top three guys are good, but also yep. bad because there are real questions about the depth of this team after that Panama game. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Let's let's stick with that, though, for a moment, because uh, one of my big takeaways after this game, <laughs> trying not to take away massive conclusions or draw massive conclusions, I would say I, I'm confident in saying we know eight of our 11 starters if we have to win a game tomorrow. And I think if you pressed me, I would say we know 10 of the 11, possibly even 11 of the 11 if John Brooks can get it together. List list them, Taylor. List okay. them. The people need to hear it. Well, the, the MMA midfield or the MAM midfield, it's hard. MMA midfield... The A in between is a nice break because MAM midfield becomes like one word that can be kind of hard to say. But the MMA midfield is our starting midfield for sure. I I think Ricardo Pepe is our number nine until somebody else can challenge him for it. But right now, I I like everything he brings. I think if Pulisic and Reyna are healthy, there are starters out wide, though I thought Aronson did a really good job. Tim Weah did fine, but I think Aronson had a more impressive game in my opinion. Um but that would be six. I think we know that that Anthony Robinson and Serginho Dest are our fullbacks. That is a thing that I, I maybe was like confident in, but not sure of heading into this one and coming out of it. That's my biggest conclusion is that those two give us such a different look and are so consistently threats going forward and like and as wide options so defenses have to stay wide they can't be quite as narrow and tight as they want to be so there's eight right there I think if you press me I would say right now I'm comfortable with Matt Turner as the number one though I thought Stefan did fine and so then it's the center backs and I I didn't love some of the passing from Miles Robinson on the night he made up for it with his pace and I think that's the thing that he can learn and tighten up on um I used to be really frustrated with his long ball distribution, and that's a thing that I don't really think about as much anymore because that seems to be a thing he's worked on and improved. So I think if he tightens up the passing, he is definitely our starting right center back, though right now if we had to play a game tomorrow, I would have him starting. And then it's really just left center back. Weirdly, the position that I would have thought of as our strongest when we started World Cup qualifying is now the position, maybe the only position, that I'm not quite as confident in because it seems like Zimmerman did enough that Berhalter enjoyed him and made him captain. Chris Richards, I thought, had a pretty solid game last night, but the sample size is small. And then there's John Brooks, who has looked so good for the United States for so long, but then so poor more recently that he is a big question mark for me right now. 
it's it's a lot of guys who could be in that spot. And for yep. me, it is John Brooks' spot if he's healthy and ready to go. The problem is he's just never healthy and ready to go, right? He's played so few full 90-minute games in the last year, in the last two years. It's hard to rely on him in that spot. And even when he's there, he has these obvious defensive weaknesses that we've talked about, you know, over the over the past year or so. So you have John Brooks as a contender there. You have Walker Zimmerman as a contender there. And then Chris Richards, I thought, was, was mixed in his performance last night against Costa Rica. I thought, I mentioned earlier, I thought he struggled in the air. You see that on the build up to the Costa Rica goal, you see that a couple other moments in this game where he just isn't isn't quite ready to win those balls or doesn't have the timing down. I don't know exactly what it is. And then on the ball, I thought he was a little timid as well. At least there's one sequence in the 49th minute where he's trying to play the ball into midfield and he just looks so unsure of that pass and he plays it. And it, it, it just doesn't line up for me quite yet with Chris Richards. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm done with Richards or anything like that. Let me be very clear. I think he's the most talented center back in this pool by probably a wide margin uh, uh, but he was not he was not everything i hoped he would be as this really new shiny us center back and so he is still in that conversation he's maybe not quite as high on that depth chart as i thought he was after just a few caps for the U.S. There's so much time still in this cycle for that to change. But there are options there, Taylor, and I, I'm with you. I don't know exactly who will be in that role on any given day next to Miles Robinson because of availability, because of youth, because of you know different skill sets. It's kind of hard to draw that one up. I do still feel pretty solid about that spot, though, between Zimmerman, Richards, and and Brooks. And it seems like Mark yeah. McKenzie might be in that conversation as well, even though I'm I'm not as high on him. But it, but it's a nice it is a nice position to be in that I do feel like we know the majority of our starters and the ones we don't know it's not because oh we don't have enough talent there Stefan and Turner for example I think a lot of people would say it's definitely Turner maybe a few people would say it's Stefan and maybe a few people would say I'm not sure it could be either one but that's a good problem to me that's the good type of problem a bad type of problem is we don't know who can play as a number six because Tyler Adams is hurt for a year that's not a problem I want to run into and I do <laughs> okay. think that. Uh, to your earlier point, we know, I think, a lot of the starters, I, I, again, I would say confidently nine of the 11, maybe eight of the 11, but we don't know as much about the depth behind them and if something goes wrong. I feel fine with the attacking options. I would love, I mean, I think it is probably Jassy Zardes, and he got a, lot, a, a strong show of support from the Columbus uh, hometown crowd, uh, but... It's Zardes right now as the backup. I don't know if I love that heading into a World Cup qualifier or the World Cup itself, so I hope we get more possibilities there. I hope more players sort of rise to the occasion. Maybe Josh Sargent figures some things out and turns things on. I, I saw. I want to mention that briefly for a moment since it came up, uh, or since I brought it up. <laughs> there did seem to be a lot of frustration with Sargent not being included because uh, his manager came out and said... Uh, yeah, I think it's because like they just wanted to call in domestic players. And that seems to have been taken as, oh, see, the, the Federation is controlled by MLS and they're only bringing in MLS players and they're not good enough. And I know a lot of that is because of the way the Panama game went and how many MLS players were involved. But I think it's equally likely that, first of all, I... I would have been frustrated if Josh Sargent were on this roster. I don't think he's done enough yet. I think he needs to show that he can be a number nine or a, a potent attacking option at club level, ideally, but like he needs to show more to be in the national team conversation. 
But also, like, I, I can see his manager not wanting to say, like, yeah, he's just not good enough right now. And, or maybe I could see him not wanting to tell his manager, like, yeah, they told me I'm not good enough, but saying, like, ah, they're focused on some domestic guys. Like, I think there are lots of reasons why that would be the quote. I do not think that there's a grander conspiracy. I do think sometimes it can be frustrating, some of the decisions, but that one I don't have much beef with. Uh, Joe, we should probably wrap up. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things, but we should also maybe spend some time looking ahead we, I think, learned some things, but I don't feel comfortable coming away from this saying, now we know exactly how they're going to play, exactly how they're going to change things up. That's what I would have liked to see. I would have loved to see them play this style, this aggressively, from start to finish in this round of qualifying. So we have three games. We have a three-game sample size. We know they did this, and it works. When the pressing doesn't work, they can do this, and that works. When that doesn't work, they tried this, and that didn't work. So we know we're not going to do that anymore. I don't know how many of those sort of, like... uh I guess, like, steps, we know for sure. It feels like we have a couple different plans on a couple different pieces of paper. What are you going to be paying attention to? What do you want to see happen in the next round of qualifying? So the next round of qualifying is a little bit unique in that it's the one two-game window of this Mm -hmm. whole thing. So there's two games, one against Mexico, that's the first game, and then the second game of this this cycle against Jamaica, right, in this World Cup qualifying uh, campaign. So those are those are the two games that the U.S. has coming up. In those games, Taylor, because it's a two-game window, I, I really want to see the U.S.'s best players play, right? Yep. I think we Agreed. saw a huge drop-off. And I do think that, that Panama game in some ways was an anomaly from just a competitive standpoint and how passive that group looked out on the field. But I want to see this midfield as much as we can, health-permitting, right? I want to see... The, the, a lot of the players that we just talked about as being guys that feel like they've claimed starting jobs. I think there's really no reason for any of the excuses surrounding rotation to pop up again. You will have to rotate some likely. There are going to be health issues that come up from a Friday game to a Tuesday game in November. That is the reality here. It's not a full week between these games. But a lot of those excuses kind of go drown, down the drain for me. So that's yep. that's one thing. I want to see the best players play. And I think we learn from this window the difference that can make, right? And, and again, Costa Rica and Jamaica, I don't think are nearly as good as Panama right now. So there is that caveat that maybe the best players play against Panama and the U.S. doesn't look all that good either. I, I still think, though, it would have made a huge difference in that game. Not that it was necessarily possible to play everybody in all three games. I don't think that's how this thing works. But I want to see the best players play. I want to see the U.S. continue to refine their possession play because we saw glimpses of it against Jamaica, little glimpses and and saw them be dangerous with the ball. We saw nothing against Panama. And then we saw a lot of good moments with the ball against Costa Rica, not flawless, but a lot of good stuff. I like that. And I want to see more of that. That's a really obvious thing to say, but limiting turnovers, having Weston McKinney maybe settle slightly on the ball, um, having Adams continue to, to try and be sharp and turn quick in midfield to have the wingers be dangerous and, and diversify their runs in the final third. Right. We mentioned that. I think that would be huge going forward because it would give the U S that little extra oomph and get them from those main city zones to actually having the ball in the back of the net more often and scoring earlier and and more frequently. So all of those things I think will be huge. Maybe refining the press a little bit defensively. I thought there were a handful of moments in this game where Pepe was trying to signal a midfielder to come behind him to close the the central midfielder for Costa Rica down. And in reality, I think he just should have blocked off that passing angle with his run. There's a moment in the 37th minute where he lets Calvo find Tejada in midfield. There's a moment in the 58th minute. That's the one where he's motioning for a central midfielder to come and cover him. And no one actually does. And Costa Rica just play right through. I want to see some of that refined. And we also saw some weaknesses 
instances than that in the Panama game where the wingers were pinching in and Panama was just exposing the U.S.'s weak points out wide. So I want to see some of those things cleaned up. But really, Taylor, as much as I love to talk about tactics and love to talk about these these margins and trying to have the U.S. maximize their effectiveness on the field, if the U.S. have really good players out on the field for as many of these next games as possible, you kind of have to feel good about their odds to qualify the for the World Cup, even though they have been lackluster in a lot of these games so far through the six that we've seen in World Cup qualifying. Yeah, I agree. I think if you've got those two games, now is not the time to experiment. Those two games, they need to be the full strength team, whatever it might be, playing two games back to back. And if you got to make substitutions, you got to make substitutions. You prepare people to be impact subs and, and do different things and bring different looks and I don't know, have more designs at pieces when they come on. But for the most part, I want that same starting 11 from one one game to the next because you want to build that squad harmony. You want to build that familiarity within the team. And then you have friendlies in the January window to try different combinations and different looks. And you can experiment a bit more in games that aren't as important. And World Cup qualifying, the way it's gone so far, I don't think we can afford to to roll the dice the way we have and to take some of the chances we have. We're fortunate that the the table is as it is and that nobody is is truly dominant. What Mexico are ahead by three points, but the U.S. very much in the conversation. And then not that anybody is like fully out of it, but you do have the kind of drop off that would be expected. But it's still people taking points off of each other and making things difficult for each other. But I, I think the U.S., if they were able to get a win and a draw in those next two games or two wins obviously would be lovely. But I think consistency in the team and the way they want to play and what they're trying to do and then results coming from that would go a long way towards having me feel like we have learned what we need to do. We have learned how we want to play and we've learned how to get results. And really, the only other thing I can say specifically is that I would like if the over-under is set at like three and a half clear-cut chances, I would love to be able to take the over and win. (laughs) Uh, Because I still... Don't love how limited the opportunities are when we're actually getting shots on on frame that aren't coming from like a Jamaican player just choosing not to mark for a while. I would love for the United States to be able to create more opportunities to get those shots off, to make their opponent uncomfortable, and to really just create chances as opposed to pouncing on a loose ball and taking a first-time shot. I don't love that as much as aggressively pressing, winning the ball, a quick series of one-twos leads to a cutback that leads to a shot, whether or not it's a goal. I would love for it to be a goal, but more so I want to see that chance creation increase. One quick thing, Taylor, for me, and then I've got a closing thought, if you'll sure. permit me. I know we're running a little bit long It here. is permitted. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> the judge has spoken. Um, Gianluca Busio, I thought, was excellent in this game, in this cameo off the bench. With all the caveats about Costa Rica still applying here, he was getting on the ball. He was threading some nice passes. He was working well on that right side with Yedlin. I just liked a lot of what he brought to the table, yeah. and I am interested to see more of him in the next window. If, if he does end up getting on the field, I, he's still not a guy that I would say is first choice, but it was an interesting cameo that left me feeling better about Busio than I expected. So yeah. that's... Oh, go ahead, Taylor. Go I ahead. was just going to say, uh, I enjoyed also Berhalter talking about Busio's yeah. par- parents, <laughs> yeah. I guess, having words with him for not playing Busio more. <laughs> I enjoyed that. It seemed good-natured. Uh, the thing that stood out to me about Busio... Uh, aside from the fact that he he looked fine coming on and just did what he needed to do and kept the ball moving, he and Brandon Aronson are unflappable in the best possible way that Aronson gets fouled a lot in this game. A, a lot, like, in the beginning, a lot in the middle, a lot at the end. Uh, and never gets into it. You never see him lose his cool. He's not one to turn it, like turn around and start screaming at the ref. And there's even a moment when I think a Costa Rican player thinks he's going to. You know, it's Busio. Busio. It's Busio this time. Busio did the same thing. And there's one in the very end where I think it is Matarita 
sort of sweeps the leg. He's going for the ball, doesn't get it, just takes out Busio, and I think it ends up being a throw-in instead of a foul. And Busio hops right back up, and Matarita does the same. I think because Busio gets up so quickly, I think he expects Busio to kind of stand over him and do the, like, what are you doing, man? And instead, Busio just walks off. And Ma- you can see Matarita sort of, like, flame up and then, like, have to kind of lower the shoulders and walk away. And just... That nobody was really getting into it in a game when, the, at that point, the United States is ahead. They can, they don't need cards. They don't need to lose their cool. They don't need to lose their focus. That Aronson and Busio, despite the fouling and the physicality, just kept rolling with it, I think is so important. And Des the same. He talked afterwards. Uh, Charlie Boehm had the quote about how like CONCACAF is more intense than, than Europe. And he wasn't expecting this intensity in these teams to play the way they do and care as much as they do. But that the U.S. can do the same and raise their game. And when they do, they should win every single game. I liked that response from him, and I liked how the U.S. just sort of kept battling and never lost their cool in a game when there were plenty of opportunities to lose their cool with the way it was officiated. So credit to Busio and credit to the U.S. for that one. So that was my quick thought that turned into a not-so-quick thought. <laughs> my, my closing thought on this game Please. and on this window is the U.S. sitting on 11 points right now, three points behind Mexico on 14, one point ahead of Canada with 10 points. The U.S. is in second in the Ocho. That's a good spot to be in, relatively speaking. And I think if if you're Greg Baralter, you probably take that with the really young group that he has. And so the points are are good enough right now, I would say. Uh, the results are still mixed, man. And before this whole qualifying campaign started, I, I talked about and we talked about how results matter most. It's a really obvious thing to say, but you can't get to the World Cup if you're not getting results. And the U.S. is getting some results and enough results right now. The challenging thing is I don't know that the performances are quite at the level, generally speaking, of where they need to be. And while results do trump performance, again, duh, I think stringing together quality performances, and this is kind of another obvious thing to say, but stringing together quality performances increases your likelihood of getting results. And and despite the fact that the U.S. gets six points from this window, I'm still not wholly confident in this group's ability to string together one result and to string together another result and then to string together that third result in a window. And and they could get by by beating the Jamaicas and the Costa Ricas and the Hondurases of mm. the Ocho and still get to the World Cup. That is absolutely possible. But I think if this group raises their level, and I think they still need to do so, they could actually give themselves some more breathing room and make this uh, just a generally less stressful experience for all of us. So that's kind of my that's kind of my feelings right now on this group. I'm not I'm still not entirely confident in this group's ability to go out there and perform and play a solid soccer game for 90 minutes plus stoppage time. We haven't seen enough of that so far through these six games. We've seen glimpses of it. We've seen bits and pieces, and we've seen the talent that this group clearly has. But I'm watching for what happens next window. Can this group be consistent? Can they string together some better sequences on the field? Because while the results are there, I'm not sure the performances are. And, And that could end up being just fine, or it could end up really biting this group in the butt. This may end up being more positive than I actually feel. But I would say this, that heading into, let's just go back to the start of World Cup qualifying. There were so many unknowns about this team. Who's going to be the number nine? Is it Sargent? Sargent hasn't impressed. Who is going to be the left back? Is it Dest or is he going to be the right back? If it is Dest at left back, who is our starting right back? Is it Stefan or Turner? Who is the other midfielder in this team? Is Greg Berhalter definitely going to play Tyler Adams as a six? What happens if we don't have Pulisic and Reyna? Who can be the other attackers? And I do think we have... A lot more answers than I expected us to have. I just think we could have had those answers sooner, and Mm. I think we could have had them more consistently, basically. But I do think coming out of this window, 
We have maybe a goalkeeper competition, but I think we still know we have very good goalkeepers, and I think we both agree that Turner has the edge right now. We know that Dest is going to be a right back because Anthony Robinson has been so convincing at left back, and that's not a thing we knew. Certainly, we didn't know that a year ago. We know that now. I think we know that we want that MMA midfield, the man midfield, uh, and how good they can be, how high energy they can be. We have options if we don't have Pulisic Arena, and we have Ricardo Pepe. So we do have a lot of answers, but it's about those answers basically continuing to be the right choice and continuing to justify selection and then building the squad out around them and finding other options. And maybe it is experimenting, not in a World Cup qualifier, but in another opportunity, in another friendly, letting Jean-Luc Abusio play that number six. Or maybe it's Musa playing the six. I don't know. But I think there can still be experimentation in certain areas. It just needs to be logical and kind of building on what has already been there. And I feel like we have deviated and jumped around a little bit too much in the last couple months. And I hope that this consistency can continue and we can continue to build and have this approach and then get those big wins against even stronger opposition. And I would love to get back to the days of who the 23rd person on the roster is, is the biggest talking point and what has everybody angry as opposed to should the coach be there? And do we know if anybody on this team is good? I don't really want those questions after the next <laughs> round of qualifying. Taylor, we're six games down. There are eight more to go. I need a nap, man. Right. I, I, th- I think I'm not alone in that. It has been, it has been wild uh, has. going through all these games and there are still a number more to get through. And there's two more shows for you to record today, Joe. So I hope you weren't <laughs> counting on that nap anytime soon. We do have lister questions coming up. We also have an episode of Soccer 101 coming out this week. Joe, anything else to add from USA 2 Costa Rica 1? No, man. I I don't think I've got anything else. This was fun, as always. It was indeed. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to watch this game, rewatch this game, and then talk about this game with me today. You got it. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. And as I already alluded to, we'll talk to you very soon. (laughs) 